Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to the Haunted Collection with your host, writer, paranormal investigator, and haunted collector, Kevin Kane, here to bring you more chilling tales of terror. Welcome back, boys and girls. It's good to be here on another spooky evening, sitting here in front of my haunted collection as I share with you a couple of ghostly tales. Before I do that, be sure to go to my website, myhaunteddolls.com, and take a look at my books out there. There are a couple of books where I share ghost stories, There are supernatural novels, tales of terror, all kinds of things that will certainly pique your interest. So be sure to go to myhaunteddolls.com and check out the store. While you're at it, be sure to go to youtube.com forward slash C forward slash myhauntedolls and see the videos I've posted where I've captured EVPs and spirit box sessions with my haunted collection, as well as the stories behind some of those items. Be sure to watch and enjoy, but don't get too scared. (laughs) And then come on back here and enjoy more episodes of The Haunted Collection. Tonight, my first story comes all the way from Louisiana, straight from New Orleans. Not only is it a creepy tale, but it's a true story. Sit back and enjoy, and chill with excitement as I share with you the story of Lalari House. Madame Delphine Lalori's dinner for French General Lafayette was the talk of New Orleans and reporters for the newspapers there could not find enough synonyms for elegant to describe the party properly. But Madame Lalari was not satisfied with the brilliant social success she had achieved. As their last guest departed, she turned to her husband and said, "'This house is not at all adequate.' You will begin at once to build me a mansion suitable for the brilliant entertaining I do. Dr. Louis Lalari nodded in agreement, and early the very next morning, he went to downtown New Orleans to consult architects and builders about plans for the mansion his wife wanted. Dr. Lalari was her third husband, The two previous husbands, Don Ramon de Lopez and Jean Blanc, had both died. The couple had been married less than a year, she and Dr. Lalari, and he had no wish to displease his beautiful, willful bride. Madame Lalari had long been famous in New Orleans for her parties. And after she and Dr. Lalari moved into their mansion at 1140 Royal Street, her entertaining increased in scope and brilliance. 
to the drawing rooms, ballrooms, formal parlors, and dining rooms in the French-style three-story house came the city's socially alight, as well as the artists, writers, musicians, politicians, and gamblers, whose talents or conversations amused Madame Lalaurie. Her beauty, her wit, her charm, and her intellect combined to make her one of New Orleans' most talked-about and envied women. Her guests counted themselves fortunate, perhaps even blessed, to be included in what were the Gulf Coast's most sophisticated and stimulating social gatherings. Not one of those guests would have believed their hostess capable of sadistic torture. For not one of them realized she was mad. Quite mad. Some people did wonder occasionally why she never permitted her slaves to join with the others in Congo Square for the wild African dances there each weekend. A few friends commented that, except for her imposing mulatto butler, none of Madame LaLaurie's servants was ever seen in public or seen by her house guests. Scandal first touched Madame LaLaurie when, in 1833, a neighbor on Royal Street reported to police an incident of horror that she had witnessed. She had been looking out her window that moonlit night, the woman said, when she saw and heard a little slave girl run screaming from the Lalari home. Behind the child, lashing at her with a long bullwhip, ran Madame Lalari. The chase continued around the courtyard and back into the house where, the neighbor said, she could still hear the crack of the whip and the cries of pain as the leather thongs tore into the child's flesh. Then the terrified girl appeared on the roof of the tall house. Even at this height, Madame Lulari pursued her and continued the savage beating until the girl leaped to her death on the pavement below the scrolled eaves. It was awful, brutal and awful, the woman reported. To my dying day, I will never be able to forget the sounds of that poor child's bare feet running from death, or her screams, or the lethal crack of that whip. The police investigated and found the battered corpse of a young black girl at the bottom of an abandoned well on the Lalari property. Madame Lalari was given a quick trial, fined, and ordered to turn her slaves over to the sheriff for sale to more humane owners. It seemed small punishment for the shocking crime. But Madame Lalari had been a McCarthy, 
and the McCarthys were an influential family in New Orleans. They were a helpful family, too, and her relatives purchased the slaves at the public auction. There were few bids for the emaciated people and returned them to her. The affair had little publicity and, though it provided exciting gossip, it was never, of course, mentioned at the lavish parties Madame Lalari continued to give in her home. About a year later, on the morning of April 10th, 1834, the Lalari mansion caught fire. Before the volunteer fire department could organize effective action, smoke had filled the house and the flames were spreading. Madame Lalori walked calmly through the swirling smoke, pointing out to neighbors and friends which of her priceless antiques she wanted them to take from the burning house. Among those friends helping to save the furnishings were a judge and an attorney who happened to go to the kitchen. The fire seemed to have started there, and they carried buckets of water to douse it, and that is where they almost stumbled over the cook. The cook was chained to the floor. The two men broke the chain and carried the old woman to safely. Once outside the house, the cook confessed to police that she had started the fire. I I just couldn't stand it any longer, she moaned. And she told them that other slaves were chained in the attic of the house. A rescue team was quickly formed. The men smashed their way into the attic, where they freed seven slaves who were fastened to the floor with spiked bands around their necks, their wrists, and ankles. Scattered about the attic were instruments of torture so sadistic and so inhuman that the rescuer shrank from imagining their use. Those poor, miserable slaves knew how the contraptions were used, though. They had had personal demonstrations from an expert, that Madame Lalaurie. The crowd which had gathered outside the house was sickened and infuriated when they saw the starving, tortured wretches brought to safety. They waited expectantly. The fire had been put out. They waited for the police to take Madame Lalari into custody and haul her off to jail. Hours passed and nothing happened. Through the windows, the crowd could see Madame Lalari strolling about the rooms of her fine house, laughing and showing helpers where to replace her furniture. That sight was too much for the angry crowd. They surged toward the house, determined to met out their own brand of justice to the smiling torturer. As the mob reached the steps, 
A carriage drawn by two dark horses thundered around the corner of the house and careened down the street. Huddled in the back seat was Madame Lalaurie, and driving the vehicle was her mulatto butler. Enraged men grabbed at the carriage and at the horse's harness in a frantic effort to prevent the mad woman's escape. But the coachman butler beat them back with his long whip as they flew by. Some people said it was the same whip which Madame LaLaurie had driven the poor slave girl to her death. And so Madame LaLaurie escaped. Dr. LaLaurie, who had slipped out of the city earlier, had a small boat waiting at a secluded landing, and the two of them sailed north across Lake Pontchartrain to Manville. The couple then made their way to Mobile, where they boarded a ship for France. Reports reached New Orleans a few years later that Madame Lalaurie had been gored and trampled to death by a wild boar while she was hunting in southwestern France. One report said that her gun jammed, and she tried to beat the vicious animal back with a long whip. The whip somehow coiled itself around her legs, tripping her and impaling her on the tusks of the boar. Quite the fitting end for her. The mansion at 1140 Royal Street was occupied by a series of tenants. It served as headquarters for Union officers during the Civil War and afterwards was a gambling house. As the years passed, the structure became a school for girls and then a saloon and then an apartment house and a welfare center. Today it is a privately owned apartment building. Ask in New Orleans for directions to the place, and the reply is invariably, 1140 Royal Street? Oh, you mean the haunted house. It's that way. Because ever since the mad mistress of 1140 Royal Street left its premises, the place has been quite haunted. Tenants, union officers, gamblers, schoolgirls, bartenders, and charity workers have all reported hearing, like resurrected echoes in far rooms, the clanking of chains and hoarse voices, ghostly voices, pleading for mercy. And many neighbors tell of hearing, late at night, the sound of bare feet running across a stone courtyard, the crack of a whip, and a child's frightened screams, as the crazed apparition of Madame Lulari still carries on her merry chase after that poor little slave girl.
Have you felt the chills yet? Well, perhaps you will with my next story, which I will bring us back to Alabama with, right here in my home state. This is one of the more famous legends, though not quite as heard of these days, but when I was a child it was quite the urban legend. This is the story of Skeeto's Hole. Nobody has ever actually seen the ghost of Bill Skeeto, but people going along the road from Newton, near where the old bridge crossed the Choctawatchee River, can tell that the ghost has been there. Invariably, the hole under the tree where Skeeto was hanged is clean. As clean as if a brush broom or a pine top had swept it out. Even if the hole is heaped high with dirt every day, the dirt disappears during the night. And the next morning, the hole is there again. Bill Skeeto, whose ghost apparently keeps the hole cleaned out, was born in Madrid, Spain on June 8, 1818. When he was a little lad, he came with his father to Dell County and settled near Newton, a small town in the Wiregrass section of Alabama. There were not many Spaniards in that part of the country, and some people were suspicious of foreigners. But Bill was a good boy, who won the respect of his neighbors, and when he grew up, he became a Methodist minister. After he entered the ministry, Skeeto became known as the Bible-reading preacher from Spain, and he was invited to preach at churches throughout the area. He was made pastor of a log cabin Methodist church at Newton, and he was a kind pastor, as well as a powerful preacher. It was while he was preaching in Newton that he met and married an attractive girl, and they built a home in the community. When the Civil War began in 1861, Skeeto was one of the first men from his country to join the Confederate Army. He fought bravely for three years, being in the thick of many battles and miraculously escaping serious injury. Then in the fall of 1864, he received a message that his wife was very sick. Having come from a country so far away from Alabama, Skeeto had no relatives to turn to for help. His wife did not have any close relatives either. At least not any whom Skeeto felt he could ask to stay with her in Newton to nurse her. Skeeto decided that the only thing he could do was to hire a substitute to take his place in the army so that he could go home to take care of his wife. 
It was not at all unusual for Confederate soldiers to pay other men to fight in their place during times of personal emergencies. The asking price for substitutes was about $1,000, a lot of money for a rural Methodist minister turned soldier, but Skeeto somehow managed to scrape up the needed cash. As soon as his substitute reported for duty, Skeeto jumped on his horse and headed for Newton, making the trip back home in near record time. His wife was so glad to see her husband and so relieved to have him at home that she began to improve immediately. However, her long illness had left her weak and frail, and Skeeto felt he had to stay with her until she regained her strength. The threat of defeat hung heavily over the South in 1864, and the Confederacy was in desperate need of every soldier it could get. Under these circumstances, Skeeto's prolonged stay at home began to arouse some resentment and suspicion. A few of his neighbors, who knew Skeeto was a foreigner, began to wonder if he might not be a traitor as well. At Newton, there were a number of men who had organized themselves to round up and punish deserters. They called themselves Captain Breer's Home Guard. There were some accusations that the Guard had been organized for the purpose of keeping its members safe at home while other men were away fighting for the South. But defenders of the unit said it was member that his members really were too old or too infirm to serve in the military forces and that they performed a commendable service for the Confederacy. Be that as it may, the guard heard about Skeeto's return from the army, jumped to the conclusion that he must be a traitor and laid plans to ambush him and give him a deserter's punishment. On the evening of December 3rd, 1864, members of the Home Guard gathered at the foot of the bridge on the west side of Choctawatchee River to waylay their victim. When Skeeto appeared, two men engaged him in conversation an apparent gesture of friendship to which Skeeto responded gratefully. He answered their questions about his wife's health and even showed them the medicine he had gone to town to purchase for her. As they talked, the other men who had been hiding in a thicket of huckleberry bushes crept up behind Skeeto and slipped a noose of new rope around his neck. Skeeto was a big, strong man, but he was treacherously surprised. Although he struggled valiantly to escape, it was to no purpose. His arms were pinioned to his back by a tight cord, and his feet were tied together. Then his captors shoved him to the ground and took turns kicking him as they forced him to try to crawl in the deep sand. 
tiring of this sport and wishing to get on with the punishment they had planned, the members of the so-called military court threw Skeeto into a buggy and maneuvered the vehicle to a spot underneath a stout limb jutting out from the south side of a big post-oak tree. This was to be Skeeto's hanging tree. At this time, Wesley Dowling, who knew and admired Skeeto, came down the road. When he saw what was happening, he stopped and began to beg the home guard to give their captive a fair trial. Instead of accepting this plea, one of the men gave Wesley a hard cuff and threatened to hang him too if he interfered further. Alarmed lest other passers-by should see what they were up to, the men in the guard hastened their preparation for Skeeto's hanging. They threw the rope over the limb and then asked Skeeto if he had any last words. He replied that he would like to pray. This answer made the men a little uneasy, but how could they refuse to let a man have a final prayer, particularly if the man was a preacher? So they granted his request. Instead of praying for himself as they had expected, Skeeto instead prayed for his tormentors. Forgive them, dear Lord. Forgive them, he prayed. This prayer so infuriated the home guard that even before the doomed man had finished praying, Captain Breer gave a sharp lash of his whip to the rump of the red horse hitched to the buggy. The frightened animal plunged forward, jerking Skeeto out of the buggy. Skeeto's neck should have been broken. But in making their hurried plans for the hanging, the home guard members had not allowed for their victim's height and size. Skeeto was tall, and his frame was not spare. So the limb to which the rope was tied bent under Skeeto's weight, and his toes touched the ground. Quickly, George Eccles, a cripple, grabbed his crutch and dug it to the, used it to dig a hole in the sandy soil right under Skeeto's feet so that his toes could not touch the ground and his body would swing from the rope. The noose tightened and did its deadly work, and Skeeto died. News of what was happening near the bridge reached Newton too late for friends to save the minister's life. But several men went to the spot, took Skeeto's body down from the tree, and laid it out in a cotton house across the road. He was later buried in the graveyard at Mount Carmel Church, where his tombstone may still be seen today. But the story of Bill Skeeto did not end with his burial. The six men who had hanged Skeeto were never able to sleep peacefully at night, and not one of them would ever again walk alone outside after dark. 
Though they locked their doors and barred their windows, they were tormented by a nameless dread and fear. And each one in his turn met a violent death. One of the men was killed on horseback when a limb from a post oak tree, the same kind of tree on which Skeeto was hung, fell on him. It was a still day, not a breath of wind stirring, but the heavy limb fell just as the rider passed beneath the tree. Another member of the lynch party was killed when thrown from a runaway mule that unaccountably took fright on a quiet, open stretch of road. A third member of the group was struck by lightning, and another was found dead in a deep swamp. The other two also met their deaths in mysterious ways. Almost immediately after the hanging, curious people began visiting the site of the tragedy. As time went by, they observed that the hole dug by the crutch did not fill up as an ordinary hole would have done, and there were whisperings that Skeeto's ghost was returning to the spot to keep the hole clean. Some years later, two men who were part of a crew building a new bridge over the river decided to camp on the spot where Skeeto had died. They did not believe in ghosts, so they filled up the hole, pitched their tent over it, and the braver of the two men put his bedroll directly over the freshly filled hole. They spent a fairly comfortable night. But the next morning, when they broke camp, the braver man picked up his bedroll and found, to his amazement, that the hole was there again. Although he had filled it up himself, it had lain on it all night long. The hanging oak is not there anymore, but the hole still is. It is about 30 inches wide at the top and slopes to a depth of about 8 inches. Three young pine trees grew close to the hole and have since grown, but even their needles do not remain in that hole. Something, something sweeps them away, leaving the hole as clean and, and as empty as it was the day an innocent man was hanged there. you enjoyed these chilling tales that I've shared this evening for this episode. I'll have you know that I enjoyed telling them to you, and I hope they continue to be shared throughout more years and more decades. These are wonderful, creepy stories that should never, ever die. (laughs) 
So keep them alive and keep sharing them. Once again, be sure to check out my website, myhaunteddolls.com, and shop, shop, shop. I will be back in a few weeks with another episode of Chilling Tales for your amusement. Until then, keep those doors locked and those windows bolted. But by all means, have a happy haunting. Ha <laughs> ha